Lord, we lift up this time to you and pray that as Craig brings the message today, you would build your church through your word. Purify our hearts, God, with this message. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. You may be seated. And please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, and we will be studying verses 8 through 15 this morning. Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 15. I remember the day when I discovered that I needed glasses. I was really getting into bowling at the time. I started really getting into it by planning youth events. I mean, when you can play a dollar at a game, it makes a great youth activity. Uh, I got so into it, I even joined a league for the first time in my life. And although I really enjoyed bowling, I was not very good at bowling. I tried to focus on all the things I was told that I needed to do and the right body position and the right approach. And I was, I was so focused on all the things I was supposed to be doing, but none of it fixed the problem. Because the biggest problem is I could not see. I couldn't see anything beyond the first part of the lane without be, being blurry. I couldn't see the pins. I couldn't see the markers on the lane. I needed glasses. And it's amazing how much my score ticked up once you can actually see what you're aiming at. It didn't matter how much I would focus on myself and what I'm doing and how introspective I was. What needed to happen was I needed to wear glasses to be able to see. What a difference it makes when you have the right pair of glasses, right? That's what Paul's trying to do for us in Romans. That, that is what Paul is doing here. Paul is giving us gospel-tinted glasses. So if you think that our sermons for the first few weeks in our study of Romans sounds very repetitive, whether it's me or Pastor Bob, it's like gospel, gospel, gospel. We get it. Well, you're in for a long ride. Because that's what Romans is about. It's about the gospel. And, and Paul's focused on this letter about the gospel. He's like a, a jeweler taking a fine diamond and looking at it through every single perspective, slowly turning it around to see how the light catches it at different angles. And that diamond is the gospel. And as we preach the text, our goal as preachers is that Paul's point would be our point. And if Paul's talking about the gospel, then we are going to be talking about the gospel. So Pastor Bob showed us last week that this letter started with a, really a summary of the entire letter, which is about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and, and God's grace of salvation to sinners like us. And then in our passage today, in verses 8 through 15, Paul's going to show us that it's not just about my salvation. It's just not about salvation of God saved me, I check it off the list, and I just go on my merry way. It's not just an introspective matter. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me that the gospel does affect me personally. It does affect you personally, but it's not only affecting us personally. It's not just self-focused, that the gospel is not just an introspective way of looking at ourselves. The gospel is a new pair of glasses to look at our entire lives, to look at the world around us. So in these verses, Paul is looking at this question, how does the gospel affect the way that I see my everyday life? That's the question. Paul's saying the gospel is not just something that gets you saved, you check it off and you file it away. The gospel is what affects the whole way we see life 
as a Christian. So, so this morning, let's learn from Paul. Let's learn from Paul of what it means to put on these gospel-tinted glasses and to see how, how the gospel would teach us not to just to think about our own salvation, but about how our own salvation reveals how would we would think about God, about his church, and about the world. So first, let's see how this passage shows us that in light of the gospel, the gospel reveals the gratitude we should have to God, our gratitude to God. Look at verse 8, <coughs> where Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So he starts by saying first or to begin with, he gives thanks. Now, this is very common. If you were to to read any letter in the Greco-Roman world, most of them would start with some sort of thanksgiving. I'm thankful for this. I'm thankful for you. But Paul's modifying this practice. He's not just including this because it's a social politeness or some courtesy. He's not just generally thankful or culturally thankful. He's specifically thankful in light of the gospel. Look at the words Paul used to modify that thanksgiving, right? Why is Paul thankful? He's not just saying, I'm thankful for you, but he's saying he's thankful to who? To God, to my God. See, for Paul, No matter what was going on in his life, we don't know all the circumstances here, but we know he had many challenges through his ministry. We knew that Paul said there's always a reason to be thankful, and that's because of who God is, that he is the one who gives us everything we have to be thankful for. I love it how Milton Vincent puts it in his gospel primer. He talks about God. I asked to to put this on the screen so you could read this with me. As we think about this God is, who this God is that we're thankful to, he says, my God is immense beyond imagination. He measured the entire universe with merely the span of his hand. He is unimaginably awesome in all of his perfections, absolutely righteous, holy, and just in all of his ways. He has been unbelievably good and merciful to me as the creator and sustainer of my life. Every breath, every heartbeat, every function of every organ in my body is a gift from him. Every legitimate pleasure I experience is a gift from his loving hand to me. All that I am and all that I have, I owe to him and to his goodness. Isn't that a reason to be thankful? That's what Paul has always a reason to be thankful. That's why later in Romans 1, Paul ties thanklessness with a sinful heart. Because when we stop to think of who God is and how God has provided for us, how he's sustained us, how every single heartbeat we have is a gift from him, how could we not be thankful? But, but, but notice that's not all Paul says here. He's not just thankful to my God, but thankful to my God. You see that there? That in the Greco and Roman world, they would never add that pronoun when speaking about God. But Paul said, it's not just God in general, but my God. That no matter what troubles Paul faced, no matter how dry he might have felt on his mission, no matter what obstacles he was facing in his life, and his ministry, Paul had a personal relationship with the creator of the universe where he could call him my God. I mean, how is that possible? In fact, maybe you're visiting with us this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with the God of the universe, the God who created you, the God who loves you. First of all, if you don't have that and you're here, we're glad that you're here this morning. We want to say welcome. This is a wonderful place for you to be. We have good news for you. 
when we're talking about the gospel, that word gospel means good news. We have good news that, that although we have not been thankful to God, although we have not honored God, although we have exchanged God and shamed him and exchanged him for, for our lusts instead, which is what the Bible calls sin, even though we did all of that to God, the good news is that God loved us and he loves us. And God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. He was punished in our place as if he had committed our sins, bearing the wrath that we deserve. And he rose from the dead to, vin to be vindicated before our eyes, to see that the, 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 the debt has been paid for and that this, uh, he offers us forgiveness and reconciliation with God by a purely, by a free gift of grace so that Jesus has done the work. It's not something that we have to do. How can God be my God? What do I have to check off my list? It's not about what we do. It's about, about what Christ has already done for us. That's the good news. And so that if we would repent of our sin, we would turn from our sinful ways and we would turn to trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and our Lord, then we can have our sins forgiven that we can be reconciled to God. We can have a relationship with God so that like Paul and like every follower of Jesus Christ here this morning, we can call God my God. We can know that he, you can know that he is your God, that you can approach him boldly in prayer and thanksgiving through Jesus Christ in that personal relationship with God. If you want to know more about how you can have your sins forgiven, how you can have this relationship with God, Please don't leave. We would love, without asking someone, we would love to tell you more. Talk to the person who brought you. Talk to any member of our church. I'll be at the back of the sanctuary after, and we'd love to tell you more about this good news of Jesus Christ. But as we continue to look at this passage, notice that Paul's thanksgiving is not just about, just about God himself and, and what God has done for Paul, for him, but he's thankful to my God through Jesus Christ for who? For all of you, for the Romans that he's writing to, this Roman church. See, Paul always had a re multiple reasons to be thankful. Paul's not always just thankful as he looks about himself, of how God saved me, but Paul would also look up, not just himself, but look up and look around and say, what is God doing in his church? What is God doing in other people? What is God doing through his church around the world? And Paul is saying, God is at work. Yes, you can be discouraged. Yes, there's difficult things that, that people deal with in the church and, and throughout the world. But we have to, as he looks up, he says, God is at work through these other believers in Rome and throughout the world. And that's a reason to be thankful. And, and particularly, he's saying he's thankful because of their what? Their faith. You see that there? I'm thankful because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, it's interesting. In the first century world, if, the, the, if you were a Greco-Roman uh, citizen and you wrote these letters, you would be thankful. You would say, I'm thankful that you are in good health. I'm thankful that business is going well. I'm thankful that you're prosperous. But that's not what Paul's focused on. That's what the world focuses on, right? That we can be thankful when things are going good. We can be thankful when, when, when people are healthy and when the money is flowing. But Paul says that's not the focus. That is not the core of what makes us thankful. What, what, what Paul focuses on is not their prosperity, but their faith. The news of their faith has spread throughout the world. The news of their faith has spread to, to throughout the Roman Empire, wherever Paul had traveled. He's hearing about the faith, the coming to faith of the Roman church. 
So, so do, you see, do you see what Paul is saying here? That the gospel that Paul cherishes, the gospel that Paul is going to remind the Romans of throughout this letter is this gospel that would overflow then in thanksgiving. This gospel reveals this gratitude we have for God as we would look at ourselves and look up and around and see his great work of salvation. And that's just not for Paul, right? It's not just saying, well, Paul's Paul's Paul, and I'm not Paul. So, of course, Paul had things to be thankful for. But no, you would say it's the same for the Romans, and it's the same for us. My, My Christian brothers and sisters, let me ask you, what occupies your hearts and your thoughts more? The troubles you're facing or the provision that God has given in the gospel? See, we often say, I know the gospel, I know that God saved me, and then we kind of put it in a little box on the side of our, our, our table, right? And we're having to focus on all the troubles that we're, we're facing and the, and the trials and tribulation. And, 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 and Paul's saying, you've got to open the box. The gospel is what can make you thankful in light of all these things. You remember what God has done. My brothers and sisters in Christ, are you more focused on what you lack materially or relationally? Or are you more focused on what you have by God's prov- gracious provision in Christ? Are, are, are you more affected by the human relationships you struggle with or the divine relationship that you can never lose? How much would we have to be thankful for if we would just focus more on the gospel? And, and how about the way that we look at the world around us? Are, are we like the Greco-Roman culture and, and, and is our thankfulness based on our health at a given time or our prosperity at a given time? Are you thankful because you have that, or you lack that, you lack thanksgiving? Or are you focused, like Paul, you could be thankful because of the gracious faith that God has provided you and others? Think about the people in your life. Think about your, your family and your friends, and your roommates, your coworkers, your church, fellow church members. Do we tend to focus on the problems that they cause or the evidences of grace of God working in their lives? I mean, I'll be honest with you, right? I tend to focus on the issues and the problems, the difficulties, and I don't stop to think, what is God doing in their life? What are the evidences of God's grace? What is evidences of their faith that I can rejoice in? As we think about what's going on around the world, do you spend more time being overwhelmed and discouraged by all the stories of, of, of evidences of this fallen world and the brokenness in this world? Or do you ever nourish your soul by filling your soul, being overwhelmed with the good news of, the, of what God's doing in faith, like Pastor Bob reported with Nikolai this morning. We need to nourish our, our, our hearts and souls and saying God is at work. And we need to be thankful for that. That's what the gospel does. The gospel reminds us that we have so much to be thankful in and what God's done in us and what God is doing in his people and in the church through Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing that the gospel would do. The second thing is the gospel would also reveal our need for the church. Look at the next few verses here. Paul's going to transition from giving thanksgiving to God for the Romans to talking to the Romans about his prayers for them. He says, for because of their faith, this is how he prays. Look at verses 9 and 10. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. This is a strange prayer. Have you ever 
taking time. This, this, I'm studying this verse, this, this, this verses in the last couple of weeks and going, this is a very interesting prayer. First of all, look at how he starts this prayer. God is my witness, the God whom I serve in my spirit. Maybe the best way to say that is the God who he serves wholeheartedly and the gospel of his son. Paul is taking an oath here. He's, he's swearing before the God that saved him and that saved the Romans that he's telling the truth, that he remembers them in his prayers. Well, that's kind of a strange way to start, a, you know, saying, I pray for you. God is my witness. I pray for you. Okay. Right? Now, he, he, some people would say maybe that there's some people who would make them be doubting that Paul's sincere, maybe, but that doesn't really show up through the rest of the letter. But this is just a way of saying, you need to know this, right? This is really important. We do the same thing today, right? If I say, I, I'm telling you the truth, I promise you, it's not always because you mistrust me, but it's, all, it's saying, this is important. You need to know this. Well, what is so important that they need to know about how he prays for them? Look at this now. And he says, here's how he prays. Okay? And, 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 and now... Side note, we're going to have to look at some grammar here. Oh, no, this is not English class, this is church. I know, but to understand what Paul's saying, you've got to look at the grammar. The main verb of what he's saying here in verses 9 and 10, the verb is, I mention you, or I remember you. And everything else talks about how Paul is mentioning them or remembering them. How is he mentioning them? He's mentioning them in his prayers. That's the manner. He's mentioning them in his prayers. And then you have that verb, asking. You see that there? Asking. Well, anytime you see an ing verb, an ing verb, that's a participle. It's not, it doesn't exist on its own. It links to the main verb. So the asking is the way that he is remembering them. How does he remember them? By asking. And what does he ask when he remembers them? He asks that he may at last, somehow by God's will, succeed in visiting them. And here's why I say this prayer is strange. When we think, when I say, hey, you know what? I'm praying for you. I'm praying that, 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 that God would work in your faith, and I'm praying that God would work in your, your family, and I'm praying that I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm interceding for things I, about you. And Paul says, I'm praying for you always, and the way that I pray for you is I'm asking that God would let me come visit you. Do you see that? That's why I say, that's a strange prayer. But that's what Paul's saying. Paul's prayers about the Romans was that he could visit the Romans. Paul's prayer has more to do with his desire to visit them than the specific requests on their behalf. That's what he's saying. He, he's not yet been able to make it all the way to Rome on his missionary journeys. And so every time he prayed for the Romans, he prayed that at last maybe God would allow him to get there. Now, take a pin and put a pin in there real quick. Just a side note real quick, just as a pastoral side note, as a care for you guys, just notice something. For Paul, the desires Paul felt were not always the same as God's will. You guys see that there? This is a little bit side note, just an inference from the text. But notice that Paul had a good desire. He had a good desire, a strong desire. But he's saying, but that's not the same as God's will. Just because you, you feel strongly about something, just because you even see that there's good opportunities with that, just because it's a good plan, just because you feel good about it, sometimes you think, if, that's, if I feel good about it, then God must feel good about it. And Paul's saying, no, no. Just because you feel good about it does not mean it's God's will. 
Paul's a firsthand example. In fact, as I was talking about this with Pastor Bob this week, he pointed out that when God finally did answer this prayer, it's a way that no one would have felt good about it. Because how did Paul finally get to Rome? As a prisoner, right? So, so our, our desires, is not always the same as God's will, but let's get back to how he's praying here. We see Paul continually praying to be able to visit the Romans. Why is it when he prays for them, he prays to be able to visit them? Well, look at verses 11 and 12. For, so for this reason, I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So why does he pray so much to be able to visit them? For I long to see you. This is not just some sentimental, I miss you guys. I really do. I just miss you. Right? It's, it's not some sentimental longing. He has a purpose for this longing. So that. You see that? I long to see you that. Or I long to see you so that. Here's the key. If you want to know the key to Paul's prayer, the key to Paul's heart, why he, he prays this strange prayer that instead of just praying for them, he prays for them that he would come to be able to visit them. Here's the purpose. So that he may impart to them some spiritual gift. What gift? I'll tell you what, this statement is like candy for egghead theologians. It, it, it drives them nuts. It's like catnip, right? Because Paul just says spiritual gift, and he doesn't explain himself, and theologians go, ooh, lots of pages in the commentary on this, right? Lots of different options of what this spiritual gift can be. Trust me, and I, and I read them. And, and, and they are, they're all over the place, right? Oh, I hear spiritual gift. I think the list in Romans 12. I hear spiritual gift. It's some miraculous work. I hear spiritual gift. It's something with Paul's apostleship. All kinds of ideas about spiritual gifts. I, I think there's some hints in the passage. I would personally lean to the idea that the spiritual gift is, is what he communicates in the letter to the Romans. He can't visit them. So he's sending this letter in its place, that the, the, the encouragement with the gospel. But, but the problem with all these speculations is that Paul doesn't think it's very important for us to know what it, that spiritual gift is. Do you notice that? Paul doesn't explain. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, that's not what is most important. And theologians go, but I want to know. And Paul says, too bad. <coughs> because for Paul, the focus is not what the exact gift is. More important is the result of that gift. You see that there? Paul, look at verse 11. Paul longs to visit the Romans that he may part, impart some indefinitely undefined spiritual gift. Here's what's important. In order to what? Just make them strong, to strengthen them. That's what Paul says is important. See, here's the difficulty with this passage, and here's the, the problem, honestly, a lot of times in our, our own Christian lives. See, when we think about our, our gifts, when we think about the ways that we, God would work through us, and whether that's spiritual gifts like that are listed later in Romans 12 that we would typically call spiritual gifts, or whether it's things like the substance of our ministry or the quality of our gospel teaching or the artistic excellence of our music, we think that that is the focus. And Paul's saying that's not his, the focus. That's not the Holy Spirit's focus. The purpose of our gifts is more important than the substance of our gifts. I love what Augustine once said. I want to paraphrase him. He basically said, if you want to know your God-given gifts, you first need to know the purpose of spiritual gifts. 
And that purpose of all of God's giftedness is to bring unity and strength to his church. And so here's what Augustine said. When you understand that, love God and do what you feel like doing. Right? When you understand the purpose is, is that whatever you do would be to glorify God and strengthen the church, he said, love God and do what you feel like doing. As long as you're meeting that purpose. See, Paul understood the purpose of his gift, the purpose of his ministry, the purpose of wherever God would send him is to strengthen the church. The focus is not about Paul. The focus is not about his gift. The focus is about strengthening God's church. That's why Paul wanted to, to visit the Roman Christians. That's why this, this letter is so focused on the gospel to them because he says, my whole purpose, everything I want to do is to strengthen this church in Rome. And so that's why he's going to give them the gospel in this letter. And you may think, but wait a minute, that, that doesn't make sense because the gospel's for unbelievers, not for believers. The church in Rome is full of believers. So why would Paul be giving believers the gospel to strengthen them? Well, see, for Paul, the gospel is not just what makes us into Christ followers. The gospel is what strengthens us as Christ followers. That this whole letter of Romans is going to emphasize this point. Let me say that again. The gospel not only makes us into Christ followers, the gospel strengthens us as Christ followers. And, and, and so that's what Paul is saying here, is that the gospel is not only God's message to initiate faith, but to bring about the obedience in faith. Last week we saw in verse 5. The gospel is not just the power for salvation in the past. That's how the ESV translates verse 16. But it's God's power to keep us unto the day of salvation in the future. It's very confusing on what that preposition would be. I think that there's, there's some elements of both. In other words, the gospel is God's power and his plan to strengthen the church. So Paul, through his gifts, through his ministry, through his letter, through his visit, is going to strengthen them with the gospel. That is his purpose here. Now look at how that's going to work its way out. How does Paul want to strengthen them with the gospel? Look at verse 12, where he says, that is. Here's what this mutual strength, here's what this strengthening looks like. How do we become strong in our faith? By being mutually encouraged by each other's faith. You see that? He says, here's the purpose that we strengthen our faith, become strong. How does that happen? He says, by mutual encouragement by each other's faith. And then Paul emphasizes that idea. He adds these little words, both yours and mine. That is not proper English. And that is not proper Greek either. You can't just say yours and mine. Yours and mine what? Yours and mine doing what? You got to fill in the blanks here, right? Paul, Paul's saying that to make us pause and say, what is he talking about? We have to fill in the blanks to really think about what he's saying. He's saying me being strengthened by your faith and you being strengthened by my faith. That's how strengthening happens. That's how the gospel works in the lives of believers. So let's step back for just a moment. Let's follow the logic of these verses in verses 11 and 12. Paul continually prays for the Romans, and his prayers are specifically that it would be God's will for him to visit them. And he wants to visit them so that he can strengthen them. How does he strengthen them? By means of mutual encouragement with their gospel faith. Do you see that the whole point of Paul's prayers, the whole point of Paul's visit, the whole point of Paul's gift is, would be, would be to, 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 to bring them together, to mutually encourage them to be strengthened in faith. See, hearing the gospel may bring initial salvation, but mutual encouragement with the gospel within the local church is what brings the strengthening and sanctifying of that salvation. Now, it's interesting. 
John Calvin, in his commentary on Romans, he pointed out, he says, oh, look how humble Paul is. Paul is this great apostle, and he's putting himself on the level of these lowly baby Roman Christians. Look how humble. We need to be like Paul. When we see ourselves as so much better than someone else, we need to realize we can be on their level too. I might be a little bit sarcastic there. Um, but I, I guess I struggled with that sort of interpretation because it's, it's not that Paul is an example that he's going to stoop to the level of lesser Christians. That's not the way that Paul sets an example for us here. The way that Paul sets an example is that Paul genuinely sees his need for the body of Christ. The Paul that wrote 1 Corinthians 12 that Elias read this morning is a Paul that lived that out. That if we were to ask the Apostle Paul, Paul, how do you grow in your walk in the Lord? According to Romans 1, his answer would be mutual encouragement. That Paul grows in the same way that we all need to grow and be strengthened. By, by, by the same God who saved us is, is, through, through grace and the gospel is going to provide that gospel encouragement as we are mutually involved and encouraged within the body of Christ. Our strength and our walk with Christ comes from the mutual encouragement we receive from others as we are intentional relationships within the community of the body of Christ. And the gospel is what reveals our need for that, that we continue to need the gospel. And the way we receive that strengthening from the gospel is relationships within the local church. Uh, the person who I have been most impacted by, who I think explains this the most, is, is Paul Tripp. You, you get probably the same thing in every book he's written. Uh, I'm just picking one to read a long quote from you guys. But listen to him. He could just say this so better than I could about how this idea that our sanctification, that our walk with God is not a privatized matter. It's a community project. Listen, listen to Tripp. He says this. He says, I was raised in the Jesus and me privatized, individualized Christianity of the fundamentalism of, this, fundamentalism of the 60s and 70s. No one knew my father and mother. I mean, really knew them. No one had a clue what was going on in our home. No one helped my father to see through the blindness that allowed him to live a double life of skill, deception, and duplicity. No one knew how troubled my mother was beneath her encyclopedic knowledge of Scripture. No one knew. We were a Christian family in active participation with a vibrant church, but we were involved. what we were involved in lacked one of the primary and essential ingredients of healthy New Testament Christianity, a trained, mobilized, and functioning body of Christ. It was a Christianity devoid of Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, and Hebrews 3. For much of my Christian life and a portion of my ministry, I had no idea that my walk with God was a community project. I had no idea that the Christianity of the New Testament is distinctly relational from beginning to end. I understood none of the dangers inherent in attempting to live my Christian life on my own. I had no awareness of the blinding power of sin. I had no idea I was living outside of God's normal means of sightedness encouragement, conviction, strength, and growth. I had no idea how much consumerism and how little participation marked the body of Christ. I had no idea. I have now come to understand that I need others in my life. I know that I need to commit myself to living in in an intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. I know that it's my job to seek this community out to invite people to interrupt my private conversation and to say things to me that I couldn't or wouldn't say to myself. I realized how much I need, con- uh, 
how much I need warning, encouragement, rebuke, correction, protection, grace, and love. I need to see myself as connected to others, not because I've made the choice, but because of the wise design of the one who is the head of the body, the Lord Jesus Christ. I cannot allow myself to think that I am smarter than him. I cannot allow myself to think that I am stronger than I am. I cannot assign to myself a level of maturity that I do not have. I cannot begin to believe that I'm able to live outside of God's normal means of spiritual growth and be okay. Having said all this, it is to my grief to say that individualized, privatized Christianity still lives in people who have forged a life that is living above or outside the body of Christ. If you're a member here of our church, or even if you are a regular attender of OEFC, how much of what Tripp says describes you? Who knows you? Who really knows you? And I'm not talking about that after church you just start screaming all the things that are going on in your life, but I mean that who have you intentionally built relationships within the community of the people of God that, that you can be honest about those things? That, that, that you can be open with your struggles and with your sin and your embarrassing things in your life that you want no one to know? Or do you live a privatized Christianity where, yes, you've experienced God's plan of salvation in the gospel, but you're rejecting God's plan of strengthening you in the gospel through mutual encouragement in the body of Christ. Now, I gotta be honest with you. God, like he usually does, decides to apply what I'm about to preach in my life before I have to go teach it to others. It's not always what I prefer, but it's what God knows is best. And so this, this week, I had a situation of trial and temptation and difficulty that we dealt with in our family. And I just sit in there. I'm like, I don't want to tell anyone. I don't want to. I don't want to deal. I just want to deal with this myself. I don't want to share. It's embarrassing. I acted out sinfully. We're, we're, there's, there's just difficulties. I, I, I just want to. I, I, God, let's just deal with it, you and me. And God's words kept pounding me, right? That's the word of God. That it is active. And, 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 and it's true. I could try to deal with that myself. But if I wanted God's power in the situation, if I wanted God's strength in the situation, if I wanted God's growth and my faith in the situation, I had to share. I needed mutual encouragement. I could not do it God's way and do it myself. And so praise God. And praise God that I uh, worked in the office right down from Steve. And so I just walked down and said, Steve, you got a minute? Maybe it takes a little bit more than a minute. And I just shared. I'm like, here's what's going on. You know what? The devil would tell you it's to your shame to talk about those things. The devil will tell you that it's, your, it's to your guilt and shame to be honest with these embarrassing things in your life. But we have no shame in Jesus Christ. Jesus took our shame. Jesus took our guilt. Jesus paid for our sin. And our identity is now in him. So we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to feel guilt. That we can be open and honest with people that we've built intentional trust with about the embarrassing things in our lives. And that gets back to my point. Who do you have that relationship with in our church? Who have you taken intentional time to build these relationships of trust where you can, be you can be open and honest and be mutually encouraged with the gospel? That's why that if you're a member of our church, that you get a shepherding call from our elders. And one of the questions we ask you is, who from the church do you regularly meet with? And that question's not, who do you watch ball games with? Or who do you, who do you, you know, um, talk politics with? That's, that's not the point. The point is what we're talking about, what Paul's talking about with. Who do you have a relationship with where you are regularly, mutually encouraging each other with the gospel? 
Maybe that's in a Bible study. Maybe that's in a discipleship relationship. Maybe that's in an accountability relationship. Maybe that's you and another mom taking a walk after you drop your kids off for school and you encourage each other with the gospel as you're open about what's going on in life. And you share the hope of the gospel. You share the admonitions of the gospel. You share the encouragement of the gospel. You share the grace of the gospel. The the, the point is not how and which of those ones you pick. The point is, do you have something like that in your life? As a church, our desire is to provide those opportunities for those relationships, but we cannot make you take those opportunities. It's going to be up to you to intentionally show up and build those relationships. As Tripp said, I know that it's my job to seek this community out, to invite people to interrupt my private conversation, and to say to me what I couldn't or wouldn't say to myself. Who knows you? If not, as Don pointed out, open the bulletin, and where would God have you go to start to build those relationships this week? The gospel shows us that we need one another in the body of Christ. So finally, we see that the gospel shows us our gratitude we should have for God, our need for one another, and and finally, the gospel shows us our obligation to the lost. Pastor Bob hit on this last week, so we won't spend as much time here, but look at verse 13 with me, where Paul says, "I I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I might reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. So he's, again, emphasizing how important this point of this visit is. I don't want you to be aware. You, you, my brothers. In other words, listen up. I, it's so important that I come and visit you. Why? Yes, for the edification of the church and for Paul himself, but there's another purpose here. You see that? In order that he may reap some harvest or he may reap some fruit. Paul's using the imagery of a physical fruit harvest, like a farming harvest to talk about a spiritual harvest of of souls through his ministry. Paul uses this elsewhere to talk about his ministry of evangelism, of the spiritual harvest of people coming to faith in Christ. So that wherever Paul went, whatever Paul did, he was always looking for opportunities to share the gospel of Christ with people who have not heard. Why? Why was that such part of Paul's focus? Well, look at his reasoning in verse 14. He says, I'm under obligation, both the Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. I'm under obligation. If you have a King James or a New King James that translates that, I am a debtor. If you're a debtor, that means you have a debt, right? The question needs to be asked, who do you, to whom do you have a debt? Is Paul in debt to God? That's not what he says, right? He says in, he's in debt to who? People, Greeks and barbarians. You see that? He's obligated. He's in debt to people. I'm so thankful for how John Piper has explained this verse, and I think he's exactly right. You have to think about how do you get into debt? Typically, you get into debt by borrowing money from a bank or borrowing money from a credit card or something like that, right? In fact, this last week that um, my wife and I got you know, new credit cards with little Disney pictures on them, and Isaac's very excited. I want one of those. When can I, how old do I have to be till I get one of those? Like, uh-oh. Warning sign here, right? And we're talking about the danger because what you're doing when you use that credit card is you are borrowing money. You are borrowing money that you have to pay back. So no, we're not giving you one of those. But that's the idea, right? That that you are borrowing money. Now, here's the question. Did Paul borrow money from the Greeks and the barbarians or borrow anything from the Greeks and barbarians? No, he didn't borrow anything from them. Contrary to this example, 
that Paul hasn't borrowed anything. Paul has been given something for free, right? That's what the gospel is, the salvation by grace. It's a free gift from God. In fact, grace actually pays our debt. We had a debt because of our sin against God, and grace pays our debt. That's what Jesus died and rose for. So, so it's, 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 it's not a debt of him borrowing something, but it's that he has been given this for free, and so now this free gift makes him in debt to everybody else. How does that work? How does a free gift make us in debt to everybody else? Well, let's say you find some cure for universal misery. There's some worldwide epidemic, and you don't deserve the cure. You didn't earn the cure, but you find the cure. You owe it to other people to tell them, right? You you don't deserve it any more than them, so you owe them, not because it's some sense of duty, because you're just like them. You don't deserve it, they don't deserve it, but you found it, so you owe it to share it with them, right? If If you don't share with them and you act like you deserve it and they don't, when I used to teach the, the high school youth group, that didn't always come into play unless they were singing apocalyptic zombie movies or something. So I said, it's, it's like when Jamba Juice opened in town years ago. And my friends all got free Jamba Juice. And I found out later that it was free Jamba Juice. And I say, why didn't you tell me? I don't, I want free Jamba Juice. Right? They're acting like they earned the Jamba Juice and I didn't get it. Or I didn't earn it, right? It's, it's free, so we, you should tell people. And that's God's gift of grace, Right? That God's gift of grace is a free gift. So if you hold, it, hold yourself back from telling others of that free gift that you have, you are acting like you deserve God's grace and they don't, which means that you don't understand God's grace. That's the debt that Paul owes. That's the debt that you and I owe. You see, it's not that evangelism is not a part of our spiritual checklist where if I don't check it off to share with one or two people every month, then I need to feel guilty or I need to feel shame and, oh, I got to be a better Christian. That is not how Paul operates. Paul does not operate from, from a place of shame. Paul operates from a place of grace. Do you see the grace that God's given you? Do you see how you didn't deserve it? Do you see how they're no different than you? Don't they need to hear it too? We don't deserve it. But by grace, we have it, and we owe it to others to tell of that same free gift that we've received. And that grace-motivated debt, Paul says he owes to both Greeks and barbarians. You see, Greeks and barbarians was a way of dividing the Gentile world in the first century. That, that you were either, if you were a Gentile, you were either a culturally accepted uh, Greek-speaking Gentile, which is well more thought of, or you were a barbarian, which is a demeaning term for those cultures who could not speak Greek. You see that similar division. There's the wise people and there's the foolish people. That's the way that, that, that the world divides itself, right? The people who deserve something and the people who are too foolish to deserve it. It's the same today, right? Same thing today. That the world divides everybody into camps of more deserving and less deserving. There's the educated and the uneducated. There's the hard workers and there's those just looking for a handout. There's the culturally polite, and there's the rude, culturally rude people. There's Greeks, and there's barbarians. There's wise, and there's foolish. The gospel has none of that. The gospel levels the playing field. The gospel says that all of us deserve nothing except judgment for our sin. 
that no matter how educated we are, no matter how hardworking we are, no matter how polite we are, no matter how cultured you are, we're all on the same sinking ship of being sinners who've sinned against a holy God. And the gospel breaks down all these other barriers and says none of us are more deserving. But God, but God, through his amazing grace, his unmerited favor has given us this free gift to save a wretch like you and me. Not because I'm a Greek and you're a barbarian. Not because I'm educated and you're uneducated. Not because I'm wise and you're foolish. But purely by his grace. And so I'm in debt to all kinds of people. People like me, people I think are above me, people I think are below me. I'm I'm in debt to all of them to tell them of the good news I've received and that they can have as well. The gospel reveals the obligation we have to others without faith in Christ. Because let's be honest. You've been... If you've gone to this church more than a couple of months, we all know that we should evangelize. We try to make that a, a central part of our church and our preaching and our teaching. But the question is, are we impacted enough by God's grace where we are motivated by grace to evangelize? Or is there a part of us, either in our thoughts or in our actions, that is somehow believing that I deserve it and someone else doesn't? The, the harder is not, or the, the solution is not work harder in evangelism. The, the, the solution is not you should be shamed to evangelize. You know, shame is a tool of the devil. The gospel, being motivated by grace, is a tool of Christ and the Spirit. That we need to be impacted by the gospel. If you're not sharing the gospel enough, if I'm not sharing the gospel enough, we don't need more shame. We don't know the gospel enough. We need to ground ourselves in the gospel. We need to hear from the gospel. That's why we're going through Romans, that we would encourage our soul with the gospel and put on these gospel-tinted glasses to see the grace we've received and that we would owe others as well. My friends, they don't, your friends and your neighbors and your family members and your coworkers, they don't need a Bible scholar to answer their questions. They need someone who's experienced God's grace. They need someone who's been impacted by God's grace and who can share from the heart about the grace that you've received. You know, you know anyone that can share like that? I hope it's every one of you that knows the Lord Jesus Christ. So I hope you see from all this that the gospel is more than some intellectual facts that we know. The gospel is more than some personal experience that we have. The gospel is such an amazing act of God's grace that it's like new creation glasses that defines how I look at life from then on out. And that's what Paul's trying to do with the Roman church. And that's what Paul would want to do with the church here assembled at Oakers DV Free, is to have this kind of gospel perspective, to be motivated, to know the gospel, to cherish the gospel, that it had been motivated in all that we do. I love what Martin Luther once said. He said that he would teach the gospel again and again and again and again and again. Why? He said, because I greatly fear that after we've laid our heads to rest, it will soon be forgotten, and it will again disappear. That's why Paul ends in verse 15. So, in light of all of that, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Why? Because the gospel reveals the gratitude we should have to God. The gospel refocuses us not on all the problems, but not on all the things we lack, but what we have in God's grace? Are you more focused on what you lack or what you have in grace? Are you more focused on the problems that other people present for you or God's evidences of grace in their lives? 
He wants to preach the gospel because the gospel reveals the need we have for each other in the church. Our strength and faith does not come from privatized Christianity, but from God's provision, provision of mutual encouragement from relationships in the church. So let me ask again, who knows you? Who knows you in this church? And he wants to preach the gospel because the gospel reveals the debt we owe to those around us who don't know Christ. We don't deserve God's salvation. We, 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 don't, we didn't deserve it at all, but we have it by God's grace. And so we owe it to others to tell of that same free gift. Not out of shame, but because you're motivated by the grace God's shown you. Are you motivated? Think about it. In your evangelism, are you motivated by guilt and shame? You're never going to evangelize that way. Are you motivated by the gospel to evangelize? So when we walk out of church this morning into the start of this new week, let's put on our gospel-tinted glasses. Let's think on the gospel. Let's meditate on the gospel. Let's study the gospel together that we start to live light, life in light of this gospel of God's amazing grace. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this good news, and we thank you that you know us. You know us well enough that we, we need to be reminded. We forget. We forget. And so we start to focus on such lesser things instead of the gospel. Oh, Lord, that we would be thankful because of the gospel. Oh, Lord, that we would seek mutual encouragement because of the gospel. Oh, Lord, that we would seek to tell others of you because of the gospel that we've experienced. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.